Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. Caught in the web heads for the Oscars. Bona gets supersized in China. And we look at the films Tai Chi Zero, The Assassins, and Ted. This is East Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. Uh, It is Wednesday, October 3rd, 2012, as usual. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and joining me from his super secret location right here in the Fragrant Harbor is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hi, Paul. Hi, everybody. How are you, Paul? I'm doing well. How are you doing, sir? I'm okay. We just just, uh, had our four-day public holiday. Um... Of course, uh, there was a really huge uh, tragedy here in Hong Kong. Um, the, the boating accident, the, the ferry accident on Lama Island, um, that caused 38 deaths. Um, so really a mixed, a very, a very sad holiday that, that started out as a celebration of, you know, mid-autumn festival and everything, but turned uh, very tragic for, for Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> it's weird because I was... Yeah, you know, when these long holidays come up, I I pretty much go off the radar. Um, I tend not to be on Twitter. I tend not to follow the news and things because I'm pretty much doing that all week as as part of my job. You know, I'm trying to bring in news items for the kids and talk about media and stuff. So when we get these long holidays, I tend to just sort of submerge myself and get away from it. And so I was pretty much just wrapped up with the family, having the traditional mid-autumn dinner um we had a we actually did our dinner on saturday because we had a um a market to go to on sunday um my my wife uh she does um some she makes handmade soap she's got a small business that she's running and so she had joined this market and so i was on baby duty mostly uh for the market for most of the time um but i did do some help with the sales and things and interestingly um we actually sold some product to Lisa S of all people. Whoa. Uh, Whoa. She was there at the market, not with Daniel Wu, but uh, she came by and she was very interested in, in the, the, the stuff the, my wife was making and she bought uh, one of the products. Um, cool. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a surreal experience, you know, as, as I was telling, you know, talking with her and explaining to it. I didn't, I didn't say anything. I didn't ask her about, you know, the movie movie club or anything like that. Prestige, um, always a personal asset. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting experience. Uh, I didn't, totally unexpected that this would happen, but, uh, the market was over in, um, near, uh, where we, North Point, I guess. So, place? yeah, a little bit of a, you know, it's one of those areas where a lot of Westerners tend to hang out and, um, the market is appealing to a little bit of an upscale crowd. Um, the biggest, my biggest purchase was a pecan pie, this little mini pecan pie. And I wanted to buy a full-size one, but the full-size pies were 500 Hong Kong dollars. Wow. And I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't see spending that much on a pecan pie, because I'm used to buying pecan pies in the States, you know, at 
like a Publix or Winn-Dixie, you know, and they're like $5 or $10, uh, depending on if there's a sale or not. So I just couldn't see spending the equivalent of like 50 or $60 on a pie. Um, yeah, you'd, be, you'd be surprised how expensive pie is in Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, it's a, well, it's I got I got a little one. They had a little mini one that was $35, which was like, you know, suitable for one person. It was basically a, like a slice and it was good. It was tasty. I, I enjoyed it. Um, but, but yeah, I, that was like, that was my like weekend. You're in my neighborhood. Uh, could, probably. Place. Yeah. Haiku Place. Yeah, that's where my I where I go to the gym. So you're yeah. right in my neighborhood. Yeah, right around there. Um, but yeah, that was pretty much the weekend. And then uh, we had also had Monday and Tuesday off, kind of as the extensions of Mid Autumn Festival, and also of course China's National Day, when everybody got out to you know wave their uh, little red flags and uh, look at fireworks. Uh, and I stayed in, and we just watched movies most of the day. Um, and so, yeah, I was totally unaware of any of the news and stuff that was going on really until late, uh, last night. And I sort of caught up on everything and uh, yeah, it is pretty tragic. And, uh, I think it's, it's pointing to some flaws in some of the infrastructure. Um, you know, Hong Kong used to be well known for its infrastructure and it's, and it's safety issues and, you know, the security that people feel here when they, when they take taxis or take the transport systems. And so to have, you know, this issue come up and then another issue with the MTR come up today, um, you know, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe the government needs to start doing some uh, more scrutinizing of some of the things that we take for granted. It, it's really all about, at the end, I, I think what it sounds like is, is cost and, and taking down costs and trying to save money, trying to, for the bottom line, you know, risking safety for, for the bottom line. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like a very troubling issue and certainly something that's been continued to happen over the years yeah. um, as as the the economy kind of hasn't been as prosperous lately and in the last decade or so, then wages are down and, and, and all the companies are trying to, you know, make sure they continue to make a profit for their investors. You know, it seems like safety shouldn't be something that gets sacrificed for that, but unfortunately it is. Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, we'll just have to, uh, you know, hope things get better. That's all we can do. But we're not really here to talk about news, are we? We're here to talk about some movies. And what are those films we're going to be looking at this week? Uh, for East Screen, we'll be talking about The Assassin, starring uh, Chow Yun de Fat, and uh, Tai Chi Zero, um, starring um, Dan, oh, no, not Daniel, but starring Dong Kha, Kha Fai and uh, Andrew Baby and Eddie Pang, uh, and directed by Stephen Fong. And for West Screen, I will be talking about Ted. All right, all that and much more coming up right after a little bit of news. All right, so we've got a couple news stories uh, to come talk about this week. Um, up first, a little bit of Oscar news. Uh, that Kevin, you can speak to this a little bit because you've seen this film. I've wanted to see it, but I haven't had a chance to get a hold of it yet. Uh, I don't think we've gotten a release of it in Hong Kong cinemas. Uh, and that is the film Caught in the Web by director Chen Kaiga. Uh, which is called his first contemporary drama. And this has been selected as the mainland's contender for best foreign language film category at next year's Academy Awards. Um, what do you think, Kevin? I, I mean, just by looking, when I saw this and I looked at the poster, I thought this was more in line with uh, maybe virtual recall for some reason uh, than Oscar material. Uh, but does it have a shot? Um. Uh, well, first of all, uh, this is not Chen Kaige's first contemporary drama. I think uh, he did uh, together the violinist father son movie. That, I think that was his 
second, if not the first contemporary drama. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, what do I think about this film? Um, I think it's a good choice. I think it's a solid choice. Um, there were a lot of speculations about which film was going to be picked to represent China at the Oscars. And some people were talking about um, Pain of Skin because the aesthetics match the aesthetics of the film matches what you know what China has has sent to the Oscars before. Um, and I was quite surprised that they sent this film because um, first of all, the word of mouth was mixed in China. Some of the younger audience did not enjoy the film because they all expected a cyberbullying movie, not a movie about you know media manipulation and all that. Mm. But um, you know, I guess they went with the 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 director pedigree here in this case, uh, and. Uh, I think it's a good choice. I think if not for the last half hour, which is actually the weakest part of the film and kind of gave the film a weak end, um, I thought it was really a strong contender. It would be a strong contender. And But the tr- um, everyone thought that it was going to be the Feng Shao Gong film back to 1942 because it has spectacle, it has uh, battles, it had Hollywood stars, and it has a big budget. But uh, I think it wasn't completed in time for, for to do the, uh, to do the uh, qualifying screenings. So, so, so uh, they end up sending Chen Gaiga's movie. Actually, I just saw another movie this past weekend in um, in Shenzhen called Double Exposure. It's the latest film from the director of Buddha Mountain, and I thought, I think it was a strong contender. Is that the one with uh, Nick? No, this is the one with um, Fan Bingbing. Who's the male lead? Is it Nick Say? No, it's uh, William Feng Feng Shao Feng Shao oh, okay. was in uh, uh, Pain of Skin, Pain of Skin Two. But I thought actually stylistically and and the way it told its story, it had um, and Fan Bingbing's performance, it really is the Fan Bingbing show, mm. and so I think it was actually would have been a really strong contender. But I guess it's too young and doesn't really have the pedigree to represent China. Um, so let's actually round up uh, now. The Greater China Region has all its picks. Uh, China is sending Kind of Web, as we've been talking about. Uh, Hong Kong is sending uh, Life of Principle by Johnny Toe, and uh, Taiwan will be sending. Oh, Damn it! What's that thing called? Uh, touch called? of the light. Touch of the light. The story, touching story of a ballerina and a blind piano player. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> Sounds like Oscar so, bait. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what do you think, Paul? What do you think? Do you think? Um, of course, I haven't seen two of the films, yeah. but do you think Life of Principle has a has it any kind of a chance? I mean, remember this year, Intouchables is running in the is in the running, so it might actually kill all the competition because it's so popular. Yeah, um, I haven't seen Untouchables, you know, so I can't really comment. I mean, I l- really loved Life Without Principles, so I'd be very happy if that were able to somehow pull it off. But um, I think that that film's maybe a little bit too Hong Kong, you know. Mm. Uh, I think it's really, really too Hong Kong to be appreciated by, um, you know, the the, the Oscar, uh, the Academy. Um I'd be surprised if it wins, but I'd be very happy if it does. So, uh, we'll have to see. I, I agree. I, I think I think a lot of the um, the voters in Hollywood they got, they they won't understand the the social implications of the film, and they will think that it's another nonlinear narrative trying to be clever with the with the with the narrative and with surprises and things like that. And they will think that it's really not that clever. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I'm worried about. But yeah, I think Colin the Web um, might have a stronger chance than, than some might say than some might think alright we'll have to wait and see with uh, bated breath alright uh, next bit of news uh, coming up this is a, about a forthcoming film that I guess is now going into production 
called Benz, um, and uh, this is an article coming from our favorite news site, Film Biz Asia, uh, from Patrick Freider, dated uh, Wednesday, October 3rd, that is today. Um, and so, basically, uh, this is a film uh, being directed by first-time feature maker Flora Lau, and she has secured uh, Karina Lau, veteran actress, and also um, uh, uh, mainland China's Chen Kun for the main roles. And as I understand it, this is a story um, that is about, it, as I read from the site, it's about an upper-class Hong Kong lady and her mainland chauffeur. Now, when I read that, I'm thinking, all right, wait a minute, is this a period piece? It's got to be a period piece. Because the, the likelihood is that in today's society, those positions should be reversed, right? Um, that it's much more likely that you'd have a mainland upper-class person here in Hong Kong and a Hong Konger as the chauffeur. Um, that's how much fortunes have changed. So this brought to mind some ideas like, um, you know, Fishy Story and and other, you know, period pieces. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing that this is, that's what this is going to be. I mean, do you have any insight on this, Kev? Well, according to this film, uh, th I mean, according to the story, it seems like the the story is gonna take place between Hong Kong and Shenzhen, and Shenzhen as a as a hub, I guess, as a huge city, didn't really start until the early nineties. Yeah, that's true. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, so the story might be might be a little closer than we think, and um, it will be very interesting to to see because the story is actually quite interesting. Like you wrote in the notes, driving with Tai Tai. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you know it 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 does it does uh, sound like it's really gonna play on that driving Miss Daisy kind of a theme, um, just with Hong Kong sensibilities. But I does I don't know if if it's really gonna be a present day film. Um, that doesn't seem to match to me that that uh, you know that that pairing of uh, character roles. You know, because every everybody all that all that people talk about today are all the rich mainlanders coming in and buying up the luxury flats and spending all the money on golden weeks and how, you know, how depressed the Hong Kongers and their own economy has, you know, become lately and, and as a result. So, I you know I don't know if it'll if it'll, it, I don't think it'll relate uh, to a, a regular Hong Kong audience as much as a a reverse of that film might. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, Maybe. I think you're right. I think reverse version about a, a Hong Kong driver for mainland businessman in Hong Kong would actually be quite, quite interesting. I think yeah. even more interesting than this one. And um, but at least I, I'm quite glad that a first time filmmaker is making a film that actually didn't sound like artsy fartsy, uh, pretentious independent mm. uh, movie. It just it seems like solid character drama and has to a lot of really strong backing, including uh, Nansen Shi. Uh, also, who is actually usually Trey Hark's producer, uh, and cinematography by Christopher Doyle, um, production design by William Chan. This is people who work with Wong Kar Wai for crying out loud. Yeah. For the first film, I like to know who actually she. I, I really like to know her because I want to know who she knows. Yeah. There's no way that anyone can sell a spec script in Hong Kong, so I want yeah. to know who she knows. Well, she knows some it's, pretty big people. I mean, if she's got Karina Lau signed on, you know, she doesn't uh, do a lot of movies these days, so she picks and chooses carefully her roles. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing that if they, because they don't really say, uh, you know, that that she is the title character, but I'm the assumptions there, right? Yeah, and 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 if really she she really does know the right people, I want to know her too. <laughs> so Flora, <laughs> you listen to the show, give me an email. Uh, let's be friends. Ah, famous <laughs> last words, sir. 
I'm a film school graduate. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta work on my connections. Yeah. All right. Our final, final bit of news this week uh, about some cinemas up in the mainland. Uh, Bona apparently has opened China's largest cinema. Now, I originally thought they were talking about uh, large in terms of screen because uh, over at the Film Asia site, also an article from today by Patrick Frader, one of the busiest writers regarding Hong Kong cinema. Um, the the photo lists uh, an IMAX cinema, so I thought they were talking about in terms of like this going to be an IMAX, big, huge, you know, the biggest IMAX on the planet kind of a thing. Um, but that's not what it is. And then Kevin, you did a bit of research, and they were not because it says the Cineplex has ten auditoriums, making it China's largest fully commercial theater. But we're kind of the baiting that still, right? We're not sure if that's exactly accurate, so we, it might be about seating size or seating capacity? Yeah, it can be true because the, the Golden Harvest Cinema that I go to in Shenzhen has, um, has I think, 13 screens. Mm. So that already, um, that already beats, beats the bonus cinema. But what I think, like, like you said earlier, Paul, I think what they mean is the number of seating because 2,100 seats for a 10-screen cinema is, is quite a lot because usually you would average maybe 100 seats Per per smaller screen, and then you have a one huge, uh, a bigger a bigger you know main house that's made two hundred three hundred seats. But it sounds like you know each seat here averages two hundred seats. Hmm. So it sounds like uh, emphasis on bigger bigger auditoriums rather than you know um, more more auditoriums. So maybe that's what they mean by by biggest biggest uh, biggest cinema in in China. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I mean that would be roughly like uh, you know I guess. Uh, on average, a 210 seat capacity, which is pretty big. I mean, I guess that's like dynasty size, right? <laughs> pretty much more. what now? Sorry. Is, is, isn't that like dynasty size, 200 plus seats, 210 seats? No, no, no dynasty has 900 seats. In in b- between both cinemas or in one cinema? Each, each cinema has oh, 980 wow. seats. Okay. <laughs> no, this, um, this is actually more like the 210 seats is about the size of the second biggest um, auditorium in a multiplex, I think. Mm. The, the biggest, um, the biggest uh, auditorium in Hong Kong, usually in a multiplex, you have 180 seats up to 300 seats. So, so 210 is pretty impressive um, for a multiplex. Wow. If each house actually has 210 seats, it will be very imp- impressive multiplex. And if it's not 210 seats, that means the biggest, the biggest house probably has good 300, 400 seats. And um, that's actually bigger than any any um, multiplex in Hong Kong. That's the biggest uh, auditorium in the multiplex that's, mm. that I've heard of. Um, the, the cinema you should go to in Shenzhen, their biggest auditorium, um, the IMAX aside, has uh, 180 seats. Yeah. But so, all, so, uh, they all pale in comparison to the dynasty, right? Yes, but actually, um, the big thing about Chinese, um, Chinese uh, cinemas in mainland China is they, were a- they are able to attract, they have to attract audiences by, by um, upping the scale, by, by, by turning up the scale of the, the, the quality of the um, equipment. So actually, uh, Chinese multiplex these days, the new ones at least, they're actually all very good. I was watching um, Looper. I've, I've seen Looper twice already. I've seen it in Hong Kong. I've seen it in China this weekend. I, I saw it last Thursday in the cinema across the street from here. Uh, and I thought the sound was okay already, but I, I watched it in Shenzhen, and the sound is is double. I think maybe the power, the 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 loud, the the um the volume, the uh, strength of the bass, the the seating. I think it's double the quality of the cinema across the street from me, and that's in Shenzhen. Hmm. 
So, so it's it's a really important. So the the quality of the theater equipment is really key to attracting um, moviegoers in China, and um, it seems like this would be quite a, a quite a good cinema to go to. Actually, hmm. interesting. Uh, well, you know, uh, I I guess more cinemas is a good thing as long as they're not all showing three D movies, right? Because <laughs> that would be no three D movies is good. Yeah, no three D movies. All right, uh, I think it's time to move on and talk about some films. So here's this. All right, so we've got two East screen films to talk about this week. Up first, the Chow Yun-Fat feature film, The Assassins. Now, I haven't had a chance to get out and see this, unfortunately. I've had way too much diaper duty in the past weekend. Uh, But Kevin, you saw it, so can you tell us... um, how was Chow Yun-Fat, and uh, how does this film stack up with his last film, which we did not have very many nice things to say? Paul, you should totally take in the baby to watch Ted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, you want diaper duty, you know, five, you know, as a nice bear, you understand what the what the bear is saying, so it's perfect. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, the assassins. Back to East Street. Uh, the Assassins is the uh, first film from a commercial director, Zhao Linshan. Um, and I would like to know who he knows as well, because for some reason, for, the, for his first commercial film, he managed to get the crew behind uh, Zhang Yimou's films and also Chow Yun-Fat, for crying out loud, uh, to star in his film. Um, if you read, if you know anything about the romance of the Free Kingdom story or the Free Kingdoms epic, you know that um, Cao Cao is one of the more infamous characters, and he is the 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 star here he was the bad guy in Redcliffe I think uh, and any, also any recent uh, movies Lost Bladesman right uh, Lost Bladesman yeah Lost Bladesman is actually you can even call it the prequel so pre Redcliffe Cao Cao and now we get the post Redcliffe Cao Cao um, Chow and Fat stars as Cao Cao in the year 198 BC uh, he is the prime minister of the Han Dynasty the Han Nation I suppose um, so but then but then he's actually known. Uh, known as um, a man who was more feared and more respected than the emperor himself, which is played by uh, Alex Su. Um, the film starts as he returns to, to, the, to the palace after defeating Lu Bu, I think Lu Bu. Um, and, and he's returned, and, and, um, and I think there were several years of peace where the emperor did not have to deal with Cao Cao, who is this man who is actually essentially under, overwhelming him all the time whenever he's around. But now he's returned, and... Um, and people are talking again. Uh, people are talking whether whether uh, Cao Cao should should um, uh, have a coup and, and and finally become the real emperor uh, and take over the nation uh, once and for all. Um, but before that happens, a, um, a a assassination attempt happens on on Cao Cao, and there are multiple suspects. Uh, the most likely suspects seem to be um, Jing Lu and Mu Xun. Uh, Jing Lu is played by Crystal Louis Fei, and uh, Mu Xun is played by Japanese actor Hiroshi Tamaki. Um, because they were actually kidnapped as children and trained as assassins to to kill uh, Cao Cao. But since the film is told from their point of view, we know they're not the um, we know they're not the assassins. Instead, the possible um, uh, suspects could be uh, uh, the Queen, played by Annie Yi. Um, all, Whose father is also the, a, a major, uh, a, a high up minister in the in the um, in the in the in the court, uh, or Cao Cao's son Cao Pi, uh, or anyone who could be around Cao Cao, because you know anyone, everyone has a reason to kill Cao Cao. That's how you know because it's Chow and Fat, 
that's why. <laughs> but but uh, yes, the rest of the film is about how to how to how Cao Cao has to kind of root out the the, the assassins, even though Derry murdered, Derry killed and executed the suspect. Uh, apparently, it's not over because it seems like they got the wrong guy. So, in case you don't know, Chow and Fat left Redcliffe. Um, because many reasons speculated, uh, one of the reasons that's been, that's been um, circulated, that's that's actually um, apparently the most accurate, is that John wouldn't give him enough money, so he took off. Um, but anyway, it's funny that he left Redcliffe, and now he's playing the older version of the bad guy from that movie. Um, but, you know, it's hard and fat, so no matter what the material is, he's very good, and he is, of course, the best thing in the film. Um, so there's not, you don't need to say much about Char and Fat. Char and Fat is Char and Fat. But actually, the star of the film is Liu Yifei, because the film is told from the point of view of her character. Um, and you know how it is. If you have a, a period movie, big stars, and yet your main character is the female lead, you know how it is in like China. I'll, I'll leave it to your imagination. Um, rest of the cla- as for the rest of the cast, Alex Sue is very amusing. Um, even though I can't say he's good, he's very amusing as the most obviously closeted gay emperor ever, who ever lived. He has this uh, very flamboyant thing. He he his his, his hobby is to sing, is to sing, and and his his uh, persona is very flamboyant. And um, yes, he could be mistaken for gay for a gay man. It's very interesting, but a very interesting performance from Alex Sue, and easily the most amusing thing in the film, even though it's not intentionally so. Uh, Tamaki Hiroshi, I think this is his first Chinese film, and he's actually surprisingly solid. Um, he doesn't have much to do because um, the even though he's one of the two assassins that that the film is is told, who the films are you know telling the story from, um, he doesn't really have much to do because all the all the stuff went to Liu Yifei who who is um, secretly undercover in the in the court as uh, Cao Cao's concubine or something. But um, you know he's surprisingly strong. In the film, he's actually quite good, even though he's totally dubbed. Uh, he has a very um, serious intensity that matches his persona, so he's quite good. Uh, on paper, the story itself is okay. Uh, it's nothing new, but um, on a on a on a intellectual level, on a cerebral level, it, it tells an intriguing enough stories about a man who is hated by everyone, uh, who wants to find out who where his loyalties lie and where you know who is actually loyal to him and, and things like that. And you know, it's it's strong enough on paper. But the execution of it is actually quite dull. Uh, the film has very little action. Um, and the director, which I'm surprised because he's from a commercial background, he has little to no style. Um, it's really straightforward and honestly, it's kind of slow. And I would even say the movie's lifeless, lifeless I think. It, I, I, honestly, I, I did fall asleep. And when I woke up, I didn't really miss anything. And the rest of the film doesn't really engage even though there are are it's, it has its moments it doesn't really engage as a whole um i was quite surprised to find out that the cinematography of the film was uh it's actually jang yimou's cinematographer since i think hero if not the film before that because it just told me how much how much credit jang yimou deserves as a director that's how bad the cinematography is it's, it's quite lazy everything is shot from a distance the lighting is off and even half the shots are out of focus and how could you expect this from the cinematographer of China's most, you know, greatest director or most famous director? It's really quite strange. But yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's a disappointment because I wasn't sure what to expect from the film. I think um, 
people are really quite on a period film fatigue in both China and abroad, and this does nothing to help it. So uh, TV it if you like Chow and Fat. If you really want to see how Chow and Fat does Chow Chow, it is worth TVing it. I would even dare say it's worth VCDing it because it's really kind of quite a flat film that doesn't really need quality projection or anything like that. And if you don't like period films, then uh, I would say skip it. Yeah, I I, I mean. I understand. I know the I know the basic outlines of the stories from the Three Kingdoms period, and you know how different characters end up. But I mean, is is his role here comparable to um, his role in, uh, say, Cur- Curse of the Golden Flower? Um, or how does it stack up with um, Confucius, or even more recently, the role of Yan Shikai in the founding of a party? Now that you mention it, actually, the, the, the Cao Cao here is quite similar to his character in Curse of the Golden Flower. Curse yep. of the Golden Flower. Yeah, it's actually almost like Golden Dragon. Yes, that's... See how, how these things are all, all similar now? Mm. But yeah, it, you're, you're right. The, the character is quite like uh, his character in Curse of the Golden Flower. A very paranoid, kind of a tyrant-like character. Uh, and he performed it very similar to that character. I would say it's more... It's, it's, um, more entertaining to watch than Confucius, at least on a on a on a, a performance level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film itself may be on a similar level of Confucius. It is um, equally lifeless, equally dull, but Confucius does does have an um, air of pretentiousness on it that kind of makes you dislike it more because it is so kind and it's so well meaning and it's so sincere. But the film itself is so boring. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if the assassin is more worth respecting. I think Confucius is more respectable, but the assassins have a more have a, has a better child fat performance. Hmm. A question in the chat room: Ken asked, um, people were not so big on Chow's Mandarin way back in Crouching Tiger, so a decade has it improved? Um, actually, the thing is, the difference here is that Chow did not dub; it was him speaking Mandarin in Crouching Tiger. Um, but I think here he's at least partially dubbed. And if he's not partially dubbed, and if he's and if he is completely dubbed, then the dub actor they got to get to do his voice is is very very similar to Chow Chow Fat's voice because some some at some points I really did get fooled. Was he dubbed in Let the Bullets Fly? He was definitely dubbed in Let the Bullets Fly, and it's likely that he is one of the Hong Kong actors that actually have a um, have a a dedicated dubber. What can I say? How do I say it? it's certain? There are certain actors like Andy Lau has one guy who always dubs his voice. Yeah. Like Chan Fat, I think has one guy that always dubs his voice, mm. um, and there, of course, his voice would be very similar to him. And of course, the actor also does other movies, but mainly when it's Andy Lau, they would find that guy. When it's Chan Fat, they would find this other guy. And it seems like it's somewhere between um, some of Chow's voice and some of the dubbing guy's voice. That's what it sounded like. Interesting. Yeah, and no, and and Tim, actually, no, I think Chan Fat did not. Chan Fat's voice is not heard anywhere in Let the Bullets Fly. I'm pretty sure. Invoices. Secondary role. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, I, you know, in, in I guess in the scope of the, uh, the 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 films from this series, even though they're not directly related, um, which we could say Red Cliff, um, The Lost Bladesman, and uh, what was the Andy Lau one? Uh, uh, uh yeah, the Zhao Ziyong one. Um, uh. Three Kingdoms Resurrection. Yeah, yeah, Three Kingdoms Resurrection. Yes. Um, where does this lie in, in in you know in terms of films to recommend for people who are interested in 
you know, movies about that particular, um, you know, piece of literature. Well, the thing is that it covers such a broad period of history that it seems like reading five different novels, right? Um, um, I would say Redcliffe and then <laughs> skip everything else. <laughs> it was every for the last decade or so then, yeah. Um, I would say watch Redcliffe. And everything was really not worth that much worth watching. I don't know, Paul. Do you have a different opinion since you've seen actually most you, well, the Assassins? The only one you haven't seen. So. Yeah, Redcliffe is definitely uh, the obvious winner uh, of everything that they've done of late. Um, I would say I, I haven't seen this one, so it's hard. I can't. I can't put this one in the mix. But you know, I would probably say I'd go with um, uh, Three Kingdoms. Uh, first and then Lost Bladesman just because of my liking for Andy Lau a little bit more. But it's Daniel Lee. Donnie. <laughs> but it's Daniel Lee. <laughs> Daniel Lee's movie sucks. It has it has Maggie Q rocking it. With a, yeah, I know. I know. It's not a good movie, but it, you know, if we had to rank them, I'm just saying that uh, if if I were going to go back, I, I just did, you know, Donnie, I like Donnie, but he was just not good as a as Guan Yu, he was not meant for that role. Um, oh, I agree. Yeah, don't worry. Uh, actually, the film, the film begins. The assassins begins after Guan Yu dies. I think just after Guan Yu died. I think after Cha Cha defeated Guan, Guan Yu or something. So no Guan Yu in this film, by hmm. the way. Yeah. All right. So there you have it, folks. The assassins. Uh, see it or go back and watch Curse of the Golden Flower. Your choice. <laughs> go watch Redcliffe. Yeah. Uh, up next, we have uh, another film, period film, uh, that is Tai Chi Zero. Now, why is it called Tai Chi Zero? Um, I don't know, really. I mean, I've not heard a good, decent explanation, except that the Chinese name for the film is Tai Chi uh, From Zero to Hero. But yes, that's, that's, why. N- that's not the English film, so it's just Tai Chi Zero. Um, although on the poster, it looks like they've turned kind of the Tai Chi symbol into... Uh, a zero. I don't know. Well, because um, um, because the story is supposed is about the the loosely based on the founder of Tai Chi, yeah. and since in this film he hasn't learned Tai Chi yet, it is Tai Chi Zero. Yeah, but this is in no way any relation to Jet Li's Tai Chi, right? Yes, yes, not not really at yeah. all. So it's, that 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 I think that's what would be confusing to people in the West because they know Tai Chi and they might have seen Tai Chi too. And thinking this is coming in, but it's not really in the same vein at all. Um, so this is the story of uh, Yang Luchan, who, um, as a young boy, uh, is discovered to have a small deformity on his head. He's basically got a tiny horn on the right side of his head. Um, only one single horn. He doesn't, you know, it's not. He doesn't have the double horns going. Um, and this is supposedly they had a weird name for it i couldn't remember something like the the, the thrice golden crown or something um but it symbolizes that he's going to be a martial arts prodigy and whenever he gets the horn gets hit hard like it's pressed down into his skull he gains sort of like superpowers and he goes into a super kung fu rage uh, for a bit but then he gets wow ferociously sick right afterwards right um and so, uh, as a result, um, you know, he, his mother, played by Xu, uh, Xu Qi in a cameo, 
says that he needs to go and, and, you know, do this thing. He needs to become the best martial artist because that's going to be um, his thing. And she ends up uh, passing him over to a, a street martial artist that she thinks is a master, a man who recognizes his talent, um, but who actually turns out to be a, a general in the, uh, that's a Taiping Rebellion, right, Kev? I think it's like something like a divine whatever. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be part of the Taiping Rebellion, um, I think. But anyway, it's like this divine, uh, the the divine rebellion thing. So there's a, he's he's a soldier for a while. And then uh, it turns out that because of this power he has, the more he uses it, um, the closer he gets to dying because it's basically killing him every time he uses it. Um, And his master just wants to basically use him to be a soldier. And he gets um, some advice from this this mendicant, this medic, um, played by um, uh, Lee Siolong. And uh, <clears throat> he's uh, told him, he tells him to find uh, uh, Chan Village and to go and learn from, from the, the master there. But the problem is that the, the Chan Village doesn't teach uh, any outsiders, right? Um, and so he has to try and work his way into the village, the village's good graces, in order to learn from them, but they won't let him. Every time he tries to go into the village, um, they beat him up and they kick him out. And uh, he comes across uh, the, sort of the, uh, the the headmaster's daughter, who's named Yun Lang, and that's played by Angela Baby. Now, in the midst of all this, uh, you've got another character coming in, coming back from the States. He was uh, He's part of the village, but he's not because of um, some some issue with his birth. So he was never taught uh, the, the kung fu of the village. And so he's always felt like an outsider. So he went and he learned technology off in the West, and now he's come back. And he wants, he has a plan, he wants to bring technology to the village, and he wants to build a rail through the village as well. Well, the villagers don't like this uh, none too much, and so this sets up a standoff between uh, him and his Western technology uh, and the village. And so that kind of sets the story. It's basically steampunk meets Kung Fu Hustle. Um, And so if you can imagine those two things being kind of merged together, uh, this is kind of the film you you get. Uh, It's got simple plot points, and we've seen these things before. Again, it's, you know, the prodigy Kung Fu student uh, wanting to learn from a master who's not willing to teach. Um, you know, ha- having having to fight a, a village of masters, these kinds of things, uh, uh, having a conflict with the Westerners and Western technology or Western ideals. Um, you know, so all of these plot, pe- plot points what we've seen, in, you know, in, in different movies over the years. What's different here is that it, this is all camp and intertext, the way that the director Stephen Fung presents it. Um, and also, I should mention the, the fight choreography is done by Sammo Hung. So um, the combination of those two really work well together, I think. Uh, they, uh, you know, Stephen Fung knows where to step, when to step back and let Sammo Hung kind of do his thing as, as a fight director. And uh, the rest of it, he sort of brings his youth and his modern sensibilities to cinema uh, to this film. And for me, that presents a, a fairly entertaining, uh, you know, almost two hours um, so some really good fight choreography. The big problem I have with the film is there's some terrible English acting. And I don't know why they always do this in these films, whether it was in, you know, Edison's dialogue and Gen X Cops or 
um, you know, uh, every once in a while, they try and make the movie a little bit more international by having these moments of just totally unnatural English dialogue that the actors themselves wouldn't don't sound right saying but they're it's it just comes off as very very forced right um and i think that if he would have stepped back and let them use you know switch channels a little bit and let them be a little bit more natural it would have come off a lot better than it did it just they're they're the these two scenes where the characters are just speaking english and it just sounds ridiculous um and it's because of the way that the actors are sort of forcing this this bulky dialogue um, that maybe their characters would say, but these actors really have some difficulty, you know, emoting with. Um, but when they're doing Chinese, everything's fine. I, I had no problem um, with the acting when it was, you know, in Chinese. It just it wasn't stilted. It was, you know, flowed well, and uh, I think everybody did a fine job. Um, the the interesting thing about this film is the editing that really goes on, and some of the some of the 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 cultural context that gets played around with, I guess. It's, you know, in the old days, we always complained about the MTV-style editing. And as I watched this film, and I discussed it afterwards um, with the people I watched it with, I said, this is kind of moved beyond MTV. This is, a, this is for the new generation. The new generation's kind of bored with MTV. This is the language of video games and the language of information overdrive. And so what you get is you get a lot of... Uh, you get a lot of text on screen. You get fancy subtitles in places. You get uh, actors popping up and, and a subtitle telling you the actor who's playing it and the role he's playing it. And that's sort of a throwback. Um, but then you get, you know, the, the way the fonts are being used, the way that they're, you know, and I'm thinking of like TV shows like Fringe that do this and um, uh, or Warehouse 13 where they really play a lot with subtitles and the subtext of the subtitles. And, th you know, the director does that quite often here, and he does it to an overt extent. It's almost like he's parodying that, in a sense. And I found that really, really interesting. There's also a lot of uh, contextual reference to things like uh, Angry Birds and Fruit Ninja, a lot of video game references. Even though you wouldn't think it's you know appropriate here, but he, he plays with it in a nice manner, and he does it. I don't think he overdoes it. Um, one of the, you know, Kozo mentioned after the film, this is like, uh, very much like Scott Pilgrim. And I would have to agree. It's, it's very much in that vein in a lot of places where it's, it's, uh, taking on that same sensibility of, uh, the Scott Pilgrim film. Um, and I, and yeah, as I mentioned, it references old Hong Kong cinema styles with the character credits. Um, and, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I like that kind of, I don't know, that kind of sensibility, that kind of camp as well. Um, but honestly, I have to say, I didn't really care for the lead actor, um, uh, Xiao Chaoyun. And I don't know, I was thinking who would I have liked better in, the, in, in his role. And I couldn't really come up with a name, but uh, I know he's a, you know, a lot of the people in, in these films are like up-and-coming martial arts superstars, sort of like uh, what Jet Li was when he first got his break. And they're probably trying to find, you know, the next Jet Li um, but I was thinking I might have liked just about anybody, you know, uh, in, in this role better than him. Uh, he just didn't seem to have a lot of charisma, on-screen charisma for me. And maybe that will change, uh, in, you know, as, as this narrative progresses. But in this first film, it did not. 
Um, Shu Chi, a best silent performance ever because she doesn't really get to speak much. Um, she gets but, a voiceover. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's nice to see her in, in a small role. And of course, you've got people like uh, Tony Lung and uh, Daniel Wu is going to show up kind of at some point, I guess. In part two, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we've got some more to look forward to. As Kevin mentioned, there is a part two. They did pull a Back to the Future on us. Um, if you remember seeing Back to the Future Part 2, it kind of leaves you at a cliffhanging moment, and uh, and then it shows you a trailer. Fortunately, we don't have to wait for six months, because I think the sequel is is coming fairly quickly. Um, and for me, a film that does that makes it very hard for me to recommend, uh, because it's like... It's like eating half of a dinner and then, you know, not getting to the dessert or, you know, getting through three courses of a six course meal and then having to recommend it. For me, it's very hard to recommend it because for me, the whole story is not finished. Um, but that being said, I would still say this is a see it because I really like, you know, I like Stephen Fung as a director. I think he tends to do things that play with cinema, but he also brings fresh perspectives. I've pretty much liked all the films that he's done uh, to date. I even, you know, even Jump, which arguably wasn't his strongest entry, um, but I still enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, I'd say see it. Kevin. Okay. Um, the English acting, first of all, the English acting. Um, because the for some reason, uh, Andy Pang, who actually speaks you know, flew Mandarin because it's from Taiwan. Even he's dubbed, I think, for the, for the man, <clears throat> for some reason, he's dubbed in the film, I'm guessing, because his, his Mandarin isn't, the accent is off. I'm not sure why. Uh, for some reason, I don't, I don't know why Eddie Peng has to have his dubbed and while Angela Baby gets to keep her voice, even though she didn't speak the dialect that the language, that the, that the village used. It was very strange for me. But yeah, the, I think um, because the person who dubbed Eddie Peng was forced to also took his English dialogue and the person who dubbed Mandy Liu who, who is actually, uh, I think, speaks better English than Cantonese. She actually does a lot of TVB uh, cooking shows, like cooking documentary and stuff like that. So she actually speaks Cantonese, but I'm guessing her, her Mandarin is so bad they need someone to dub her. And for some reason, she had to, the person, who, the actress who dubbed her also had to speak English, which is, I think, is part of the reason why there's some really terrible English acting yeah. in the film. And even, so, even Stephen Fung, uh, who has a cameo, is dubbed. <laughs> you know, it's like the director can't even do his own dubbing. <laughs> Yes, because apparently no one, every every essentially everyone from Hong Kong in this film, ex except for Angela Baby, is dubbed. And the reason the reason Angela Baby is not dubbed is because she's originally from China, so she speaks fluent Mandarin. But like I said, it was very strange because she doesn't speak the the dialect that the village people speak, the villagers speak. So it makes no sense. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's a very strange thing. Essentially, it's because Hong Kong did not have any money, so the distributor only has you know distribution rights they don't have the right to call in the actors and dub their own voices back to cantonese so the entire film's in mandarin and which means that everyone who doesn't speak fluent mandarin are dubbed so that explains it okay first of all this is the first film uh from diversion pictures uh the the new company production company by daniel wu and Stephen fong um which is under hawaii brothers which I guess makes the whole English English line thing even worse because you know Daniel was a producer on the film and he he should know better. Um, there, like you said, like you said, Paul, there's a ton of information on screen, but I think it doesn't really none of it sticks because it's cut way too much quickly. Like the credits, I could never have time to read the actors, the all the credits left to right. I couldn't read everything. Like when Andrew Lau shows up and it says director of Infernal Affairs, 
I couldn't read the entire thing quickly. Is I just know it's because I read in a review review that Andrew Lau was revealed as the director of Infernal Affairs. Um, the problem is the sense of pacing is really off. Everything is cut quick too quickly, and and nothing really sticks to the screen. No one has time to absorb the information on screen. Um, even if you're presenting a lot of information, you have to give enough time for your audience to, to read them so that they would absorb it. Uh, that's really big common sense, but I think they were trying too hard to keep the movie in uh, at 100 minutes, under 100 minutes, so everything felt kind of off. Um, it felt like they have the right ingredients, definitely. They have the money. It, it, the, the movie costs, I think, 30 mil US, both movies back-to-back. Um, they have the right design. They have this, this uh, big metal machine called Troy number one that adds to the steampunk element of the film and you know it's really imaginatively designed this this contraption um and there's a lot of money in the film they built the entire village i think um or if they if not they used to they used an older village and, and shot most of the movie there the concept is there you know this ambitious trilogy that's about the founding of tai chi um it's all there but it seemed like they have too many cooks or the wrong cooks to do it i'm not sure what happened um the producer of the film Chen Kuo-fu, who runs the, the production department of Huayi Brothers, he was director himself, and he's known to be very hands-on. He also didn't have Stephen Fung in the editing room, so the movie had two additional editors in the editing room. Uh, Samuel Hong directed the action. Stephen Fung executed everything, most of everything else. Apparently, there might have been a third director because there was a special thanks at the beginning of the credits. So just have too many cooks trying to complete this thing. And the film needed more personal style needed more and on top of flair not in the not in the sense that it needed you know more editing more slicker editing it just is back to basics you have to know the rules of editing a film or how to create a sense of pacing in a film and this is not the first i think there's two weeks in a row i'm talking about a film needing more filmmaking flair um really more confident more competent editing it's really back to basics people go back to basics learn about editing learn about why a shot needs to last longer so people can absorb the information it's really basic things um like like i was talking about a lot, a lot of um, martial arts cinema and lots of athletic figures lots of references so it's clearly that they're trying to pay homage to the whole genre and i think the the athletic <clears throat> the athletes playing the villagers were quite amusing because i guess they were only given really small doses and they were given really good comic moments i think the woman who played the the mahjong player is also a, a former athlete and she was I thought she was really amusing as the they're a very kung fu hustle type kind of deal where all these side characters seem to be more interesting than the stars themselves, uh, which is why I was amused in parts of the film. There are moments that I really like, like um, the camera will pan across a village panel, a village committee of of elders, and the names will pop up one by one by one until the final one, a question mark popped up because no one knows who it is. So yeah, I'm amused by little touches like that. But I'm not quite amused by the film as a whole. I'm a little disappointed, really. Because it told, <clears throat> it told such a small... It felt like they were holding everything back for part two. Uh, at the end of part one, they're, they finally bought on one of the biggest, biggest stars of the film that hadn't shown up yet at the time. And I'm not talking about Daniel Wu, because Daniel Wu was a small part. Um, but he finally showed up at the end. But, you don't re- but his, his, his appearance was never really foreshadowed in the film. I'm not sure if I missed it or not, um, but his he was not even mentioned once in the film that he would show up or that he's that why we should be impressed by his uh, appearance and why we should um, look forward to his appearance and suddenly shows up and it's supposed to be this cliffhanger. So I wasn't really 
there with it at the end of the first part as as opposed to you know most most cliffhangers should it should be making you oh wow that kind of feeling it didn't because no one really foreshadowed this character appearing um and you know from the trailer at the end of the film for part two it seemed like they're holding a lot of the budget back for the explosions and all the big big action big fights in part two and i really hope it delivers because um at the moment until i see part two i can only say tv it really um like I said, I have really high expectations for the film because of the people behind it and the, the amount of ambition in the film. But part one is a little bit of disappointment because they, they're not, they haven't really put in the effort to try and grab you yet. They haven't tried to impress you yet. They're really just trying to tell, feel like they're trying too much to tell the story and in telling the story, they're holding too much back. So, so I can't say for now that it's really that worth recommending, but I still look forward to part two, and I will probably still watch this movie again on IMAX 3D just to see how they just to see how they how they pull it off. Paul, Paul, do you think the 3D version will be have a lot to offer? Because China gets a 3D version of the film, which is even though it's post converted, do you think um, the 3D would no. work well in this film? No, but I'm the wrong person to ask when it comes to 3D. If it's if it's <laughs> if it's not a you know a Pixar cartoon or something, um, but you know the I think that. It would be nice to see this in IMAX. I mean, uh, I wouldn't mind watching it again if it was an IMAX 2D uh, film. I don't know. I doubt that'll be possible. I'd probably have to put on the glasses. But um, I'd like to see it back-to-back. You know, that that's how I really want to see it. I want to see it... I want to go see part one and then see part... You know, have a break and see part two at the same time. Um, I don't know if they'll do screenings of that here, though. I doubt it. Yeah, because it's so close back to back that if if the movie does well enough, and actually it's not likely here in Hong Kong because the stars, you know, the stars really have appeal and it hasn't been sold that well here. Um, if it does, I'm sure maybe the the first one will stay long enough because the the, the second part comes out at the end of this month, it comes yeah. out in three weeks. Yeah. Um. All right. So uh, there you have it. If it's coming to a theater near you and you like uh, video games and you like uh, steampunk, uh, you might want to check it out. Uh, in the chat room, Kenneth asked a question. He says, I don't know who Angela Baby is, so let me ask something dumb. Is she attempting a serious acting career, uh, judging by the choices so far, and or regardless, can she really continue with the name Angela Baby? We've made fun of her before, but yeah, that is her brand. Um, you know, think of that like Lady Gaga. Um, she has the Baby Cafe, which is a, a cafe, you know, chain of, like, restaurants that, you know, she models herself here in, for those, she's taken on like the what? What is it? Uh, Audrey Hepburn, right? Uh, that 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 kind of persona uh, for her cafe. But you know, she's got her modeling career, and she's done quite a few high-profile movies of late. You know, Black and White. Um, before that, what was she? What was the other one she was in with Mark Chow? Uh, first time. Uh, first time. You know, so she's been been getting a lot of work, and I don't. You know, I've I've joked before. You know. Is she going to grow up and be called uh, Angela Lady at some point? Um, you know, how long will she continue? She may change her name back. I mean, people do it all the time. How many times did Prince, you know, change his name? Um, you know, or John Cougar Mellencamp to John Cougar or vice versa, right? Um, so, uh, you know, she might get to a, a point when she matures in her career that she'll go back to using her regular name. and she'll she, move... she has used her Chinese name, yeah. I think, uh, in places. Um, but for now, the the Angela Baby brand is quite strong in Hong Kong. People know her by that, and they seem to be happy with the work that she does. So 
I don't think that's going to change any, any in the in the very near future. Anyway, Kevin, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I was. I'm not sure if it picked up, but yeah, I, I said Angel Babies um, uses her Chinese name often. I think I'm not sure for promotion of the film. Sometimes she's referred by Chinese name, and sometimes mm. she's referred as Angel Baby. Angel Baby. So she she knows that that in some circles or in certain occasions she has to drop the baby name and, and use her regular Chinese name, yeah. uh, which she does. I wonder if she files her taxes with that name. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Baby. Yeah. Yes. Miss Baby if you're nasty. All right. Uh, let's move on. East Green, West Green. Okay. One West Green film for this week, and it is not Looper which I had hinted at last time. Uh, unfortunately, I was not able to get out and see Looper, but I'm planning to, so we're going to save on that one till next week because I'm still dying to see that film. Um, but this week, we're going to look at the uh, film from uh, Seth MacFarlane, creator of such brands as The Family Guy and uh, American Dad, among other things, uh, and that is the film Ted. So, Kevin, you've seen this. Uh, what can you tell us about Ted. It's too bad, Paul, because I've already seen Looper twice. Sorry, I'm slacking. I know it. <laughs> no, no, I, I saw. I've seen different different cuts. So actually, just for comparison, so we can talk about the the different cuts next week. We can go very extensive into Looper next week because I yep. know that sci-fi is totally your thing. But anyway, back to Ted, which I said you should watch with your daughter once again. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, be that guy. I'm not going to be the guy. I've already determined I'm not going to be the guy that takes his toddler to the cinema and has her cry and then has to get up and, and you know, bothers people. I figured out if I can't work out the schedule to where I'm going to see a movie, um, you know, either by myself or with my wife because we have a sitter, I'm just going to have to to miss it. So That's why right. You're the man, Paul. By not taking a baby, you're, 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 you know, you're um, being the man. Yeah. That's but awesome. I will still answer phone calls during a screening. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> anyway, yeah, okay. Ted is the first film from Seth MacFarlane, which I'm sure anyone who's seen Family Guy or any of his shows would be very familiar with that voice already. Um, the voice that he used for, for Peter Griffin, and he voices a lot of his own characters, so you definitely heard the voice if you see any of his animated films or animated series, I mean. Um, here he is, his first directorial, um, live-action directorial work, um, uh, the film stars um, Mark Wahlberg as John Bennett, um, a child who, when, um, or a man who, when he was a child, uh, did not have any friends. And his only friend was a little bear that he named Teddy. Um, one Christmas, he made a wish and hoped that um, uh, his, his, his Teddy can, can actually talk to him. And by some odd fairy tale manner, uh, Ted actually gets the ability to talk. Uh, of course, he was a little child, so he spoke like a little child. Um, and after, and he became a huge sensation. Uh, went on talk shows and things like that. Was a was a star for a while. But uh, as the as the narrator of the film, which is actually Patrick Stewart, says, eventually no one gives a crap about you. So Ted eventually grow up, grows up and and settles into a normal life with with John. And um, together grow up uh, like slackers, you know, smoking weed and. Watch spend their days watching TV and not really getting anywhere, but um, John actually has since grown up and and has a steady girlfriend played by Mila Kunis, and um, he's kind of moving up in his job at a car rental agency, um, and and uh, his his girlfriend is actually 
really giving him pressure for him to grow up and to actually finally leave Ted once and for all, which it's a sign of maturity, which is leaving a childhood behind. Uh, but he, he, he can't quite leave his best friend behind because they've been together for 27 years. Um, and, and he doesn't really know which one to choose. And that's um, really the basic idea of Ted. But uh, first of all, here are my biases. Okay, I, I like crude humor, but I don't like Family Guy. As a Simpsons fan, um, I, I can't stand the way that Family Guy doesn't really have a story and, and over relies on you know side side jokes or you know these these really cheap diversions from from the plot uh, for cheap jokes. And I really never really like Family Guy that much. Um, but thank goodness that Seth MacFarlane didn't follow the Family Guy for his first film, at least not very much. He still goes on these these digressions. I think once in a while in the film, but. Um, Thankfully, perhaps the credit goes to his two co-writers. Um, the film actually manages to tell a fairly straightforward story that actually has meaning um, and is actually about something. And that, that was really the pleasant surprise because I was worried that there would be too much digression. Um, McFarlane's voice, everyone's familiar. There's even a joke in the film where the little bear, Ted, says that, um, that he would say he sounds like Peter Griffin, doesn't know why. So that kind of so, so we first back to 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 McFarlane's voice uh, and and how much characters he he himself plays, um, and he's very good, you know that with that voice. If you like that voice, then then you know you know what to expect, and um, and he's very good. Um, even Mark Wahlberg has his moments. Uh, anyone seen the trailer? You already seen his best moment in the film, his best comedic moment in the film, but you know he has surprisingly good chemistry with the CGI bear. Um, and I guess that, that really is, again, the, the strength to McFarlane's um, voice acting. Um, I'm pretty sure he read the lines on set and, and communicated with, with Wahlberg um, as if he's, he's acting opposite him. So, so they have very good chemistry together. However, the storytelling is kind of loose. Even though it doesn't go into digression, the storytelling is a little flabby. It takes a little time to get into the real story. And it kind of felt overwhelmed by the comedy at points. Um, it's... It, I don't know if I could say it's a character piece. At points, it feels like more like a character piece than a, than a, than a real story. Uh, so if you look, so it is a little loose and it felt a little slow in the middle. But still, it's a very very funny movie. Even though the plot is very predictable, you know where it's going pretty much um, the whole way. Um, but it does have really good comedic moments. Um, it isn't the best comedy of the year, but it's definitely not. It shouldn't disappoint anyone who's who knows. Who's seen the trailer, or or who knows what to expect from Seven Farland? Uh, so yeah, I would say um, see it, definitely. Paul, yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same boat with you. Is I mean, I don't like Family Guy, and I've tried to get into American Dad, and I just haven't been able to. I'm, I'm maybe I'm too firmly rooted in The Simpsons. I know that some people love both. Uh, I just. I, I've never been a fan of the humor style of Seth MacFarlane. Now, that being said, the guy is one of those rare talents that you, you'd love to hate because he is supremely talented, not only as a, you know, originally as a cartoonist, but as a voice guy because he does, does the voices. And I don't know, he was on Saturday Night Live for the season premiere a couple weeks ago, and he he can sing and he looks good and he's just, you know, He's an all-around talent, and so I don't begrudge him that at all. I've just never really gotten the the, the crudeness. I guess turns me off a bit more than anything else. I, I prefer humor that's a bit more contextual and 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 funny that way rather than just being crass. 
Um, but that being said, you still think I could go and enjoy this, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely not Family Guy. I can tell you that it's, it has its crude moments, but it's definitely not like Family Guy. At least the the com the com the comedic style is is you know it's still very funny, but but it doesn't take digressions. Yeah, which is really the thing I really really worried about. In his I monologue, really I mean, I, I know he was um, he was basically promoing for Ted, but in his monologue, he did he did have a very funny skit in Saturday Night Live where he basically became um, Peter Stewie and then Ted, and you know just himself on stage he was having a conversation with all three of those characters and it was kind of kind of funny uh, and then he broke into song <laughs> so i hope he doesn't do that at the oscars he might oh, <laughs> i, I would because yes he is him. hosting the oscars and it, it's going to be it, it's going to be uh yeah it's going to be somewhat worrisome because uh, he's going to do these impressions that you know most of his audience at the venue won't get yeah yeah you're probably right about that yeah all right uh, so that's it for Ted. Uh, sounds like it's a one to watch if you want a few laughs. And uh, does Mark Wahlberg uh, do the donkey thing? The what thing? The donkey thing, you know. Uh, hey, donkey, say hello <laughs> to your mother for me. <laughs> hey, say hi to your mom for me, will you? No, he I, yo, now you remind me of that. No, he doesn't. He didn't do it, but it's a movie that takes place in Boston, and of course, Wahlberg's from Boston, and McFarland's yeah. um, from South of Northeast. So there are a lot of, uh, and I think I think people from the Northeast or New Englanders are gonna even uh, appreciate this film more. For those of you who are, may not be familiar, that that's a skit from also from Saturday Night Live that was originally done by Andy Samberg, I think, and then they actually had one of the times when Mark Wahlberg was a guest. He uh, he riffed on it, and I I like it when. You know, actors can kind of laugh at themselves like that. Well, so. Yeah, actually, uh, I think Mark Wahlberg did the whole say your, say hi to your mom for me, will you? That thing. Well, no, it used to be, What if I think, if I'm, my memory serves me, it was um, Andy Samberg doing an impression of Mark Wahlberg yeah. doing that. And, oh. and, and he started he started doing that, I want to say, on the, the news segment, um, and, you know, as a character. But then when Mark Wahlberg came on, he, like, confronted him on it. But then it was... You know, it, it, he 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 bought into the same joke. So it, I like when actors, you know, sort of like what they did with Sarah Palin when they brought Sarah Palin on uh, for real that one time. Um, but yeah. the Mark Wahlberg event was a lot funnier for me. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, you can go. I think dig that up like on a YouTube or something. Just do like Mark Mark Wahlberg and Donkey and uh, SNL and uh, be sure you put those in because you put in donkey and something else and who knows what you'll find. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Well, only me will get you a clip of Gary. Yeah. So it's okay. Um, all right. Let us move on and let me play this. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Right, uh, we had one comment coming in this week from Steve. He says, "I think horror is much more culturally specific than comedy. It's a rare Asian film that I find scary, but I can often enjoy at least some of the humor in Asian films." And he was uh, relating to one of the things we were talking about last week with regard to, um, I guess, some of the comments uh, that that I had uh, 
discussed with regard to Chinese comedies uh, versus Chinese dramas and uh, and that discussion we had last week on uh, episode 125. Um, and I, I can understand his point, but I think for me, uh, comedy is a lot harder because the the way that you do comedy is not always the same. I mean, it can be. I mean, Jackie, for example, Jackie Chan's comedy, as we mentioned, is very much in the style of, of, of Buster Keaton, but you know, or, or 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 some 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 aspects of Chaplin. It's you know very physical, in a lot of ways, and it's physical humor. Um, but when I think of horror, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the horror might be different from a cultural level, but I mean, a lot of Asian horror is just ghost stories, um, and we've seen, you know, we have ghost stories in the West too. Um, but for me, it's more about the way that they create the scares. And that's where I see a lot of the standardization, right? Yeah. Um, usually they either do a quick cut and a loud noise or it's gore, right? And and those seem to be pretty standard, whether you're talking about Hollywood horror films or you're talking about European horror films or you're talking about Asian horror films. Um, and it, And it seems like more often than not, they go for that quick cut and loud noise, you know, the bang, uh, to get you to jump out of your seat, right? Because uh, that depends on on filmmaking techniques, and that's a visual language. That's not really a, a cultural-specific language, right? Yeah. I mean, in terms of things, I mean, and I guess it would think, we'd have to think, too, what do different people find as scary? Um, you know, I mean, I, I was much more scared by the implied fear of stuff like uh, Jaws, and, uh, you know, in Japan, uh, The Ring, than I was with, uh, you know, film, films like uh, the, anything from the Saw series or uh, Hostel or, you know, the torture porn kind of stuff. Um, because it's a lot of it's not about generating fear as maybe opposed to, to revulsion or just getting you to jump out of your seat. And and for me, getting you to jump out of your seat because you do a loud noise that hurts your eardrums is one of the cheapest methods to use, and that's why a lot of you know directors, Asian, Hollywood, European, uh, will use that, right? But I think it's overused. I think it's overdone. I think it's a, it's a cheap tactic. So I do agree that it's difficult to create a truly scary film in the sense of making you you know, making your skin crawl and making you feel like you don't want to turn off the light when you go to sleep. Um, but I guess that just comes down to innovation, right? Yeah, and I don't have much to add because I don't like horror films. <laughs> so I don't really watch horror films. And exactly because of the cheap scare tactics. And honestly, I don't go to the movies to, to, to feel scared. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't mind feeling disturbed. I wouldn't mind feeling unsettled. But I don't want to go to a movie to give myself um anxiety that's yeah. Just, yeah. I don't, yeah sorry that's just not my thing yeah i mean i'm i'm, I'm kind of the same way um i'm not a big huge fan of fan of horror but uh i'll see the occasional ghost story if it looks like you know the film's gonna appeal to me um or i'll see a you know a monster movie every now and then uh depending on the story um but you know, then again, we watch stuff like City Under Siege, and that's kind of scary. So, oh god, that movie's scary. That, that's some <laughs> scary shit. Sorry. So yeah, um, so yeah, different different perspectives. I think I think I do appreciate the, the the perspective Steve's talking about when he, you know, he says he finds a 
humor in a lot of Asian films. And, and I agree, so do I. But I think for the average Western person, they probably have to work at it a little bit more, unless it's physical humor, you know, that's more of an international, you know, oh, he fell down the stairs, haha, kind of thing, or oh, he got smacked in the face and got a black eye, haha. Um, that, that kind of humor. I think it translates a bit more easily than, you know, humor that's based more on cultural context or more on language, necessarily. Yeah, I think we can, we can modify that statement saying that physical humor, because it's a visual language, is easier to translate, but verbal humor, or like you said, cultural-based humor, those that are the most difficult to translate. All right, I think that's going to wrap things up for this show this week. Uh, of course, if you would like to be part of the show, uh, there are many ways you can get in touch with us. You can head over to our website at congcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, you can head over to iTunes and uh, leave us some feedback or some reviews over there. We'd love to hear from you there. Uh, Twitter, you can follow us on twitter.com slash congcast for show updates. Um, if you're interested in my... Uh, infrequent ramblings these days uh, twitter.com slash foxlore uh, and I would urge you to follow Mr. Ma over at twitter.com slash the golden rock that is one word the golden rock and as he often tweets uh, a variety of different updates daily cinema news things going on box office results all these kinds of things so if you are interested in uh, anything to do with cinema in Asia particularly Hong Kong China uh, I would urge you to follow him if you'd like to email us, that is uh, gmail at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can send us some comments, a question, even a short audio review, and we'll play it here on the show. And we have a Facebook, facebook.com slash eastswests. That's facebook.com slash eastswests, and that will be updated uh, as we get show notes and things like that going out there. You can check over there, too. And, of course, we... Don't really have a presence for the show on Google+, though I do post show updates on my profile, and we also have a movie group uh, event list that goes on for people in Hong Kong. So if you're in Hong Kong and you'd like to come out to a movie night, um, drop me a line and I can add you in to the events list for movie nights. And catch us on Stitcher. Of course, if you are iTunes-averse, you can follow us on Stitcher and listen to us. Stream us on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry, your WebOS phone, uh, Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher smart radio, it's the smarter way to listen to radio, and we thank them for their support of our little show. Additional thanks go out to Rob Govers of Schnauzer Studios for our theme, Rosh Chen of lovehkfilm.com for keeping us out and arranging movie nights uh, pretty much each and every week here in Hong Kong. And, of course, K-Ban, Kevin Ma, for being with me. 126, going on 127 episodes and, of course, you, the listeners. Uh, next episode, 127. Uh, we've got, what? New Simon Yam movie, maybe? Um, Looper, hopefully, definitely. 99%, hopefully, definitely, next week. Um, provided nothing gets in my way. And anything else? That, are we going to talk about the Rain movie? The Rain movie. Oh, we turned the base. Um, possible, and or I could talk about um, the two movies I saw in Shenzhen over the uh, yesterday, which is um, Double Exposure, which I mentioned earlier, the new film, the new Fan Bingbing film, or um, the new Chinese remake of Dangerous Liaison, starring Zhang Ziyi and Cecilia Chen. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a bunch of stuff on the table. We'll see uh, what we get to. It is October, and of course that means Halloween. 
And that means we are currently working on a new commentary special for Halloween. And we'll have more uh, more news about that in, in weeks to come. But a little bit of a tantalizing Halloween taste for those of you who like to hear our crazy commentaries uh, that we do every once in a while. Um, so yeah, all of that and much more on our next show. Until then, this is East Screen, West Screen, wishing you good viewing. And we will see you next week. See you next week, everybody. Hey. Uh-huh.